Well, in recent years, uh, with the help of advances in DNA, uh, there has been just this enormous interest in family ancestries. In fact, what we find is that there are companies like 23andMe and, and others like Ancestry.com that are just making an incredible amount of money by connecting people to their past. Now, there's probably a, a number of different reasons why people are interested. For some, it's just merely because of hobby. Other, it's curiosity. And for others, it might even be uh, the fact that um, let me say before we begin, I just need to clear something up. Uh, this is going to be probably a more difficult sermon to be able to listen to. So I'm going to need everybody to do everything they can not to draw more distractions. If you are about to explode, then please, by all means, go to the restroom. Uh, but to, other than that, if we can try to keep things uh, as settled as we possibly can, that will help. But back to the genealogies, there are a lot of different reasons why people do it. Again, sometimes people want to, they're, they're just curious, they want to know what's kind of going on. Uh, other people, really, it's about self-esteem. They may not feel good about themselves, so they want to be able to go back. And if they can feel like they're connected to somebody famous in world history, well, that may give them kind of a sense of belonging and significance. Well, if you were a Jewish individual in the first century, uh, then you had a whole nother level of significance when it came to this idea of family ancestries. Uh, we do know that when the children of Israel first entered into Canaan and took possession of it, that they actually divided the land up into uh, 12 different parts, uh, one part going towards each tribe of Israel. And later on in history, if you were uh, many generations uh, uh, down the line, if you wanted to live in that area, buy or sell property in those areas, you would have to prove that your family went back to that particular tribe. And oftentimes you would do this through the use of genealogies. Now, uh, we also know that even in the Old Testament, for priests to be a priest, no matter how badly you wanted to be one or not, you'd have to follow your ancestry once again, and you would have to be of the house, uh, or you'd have to be related to Aaron, and you'd also have to uh, make sure that you were a part of the tribe of um, Levi. And, and then even in the beginning of this chapter, or the beginning of the book, one of the things that we found in the beginning of the book was this, is that, that this idea of genealogies really had something to do, again, with even taxation during the day. As we read that Caesar Augustus, what he did was he, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus to all the world telling everybody that they had to go back to where? To their ancestral homes to be registered for a census for the purpose of taxes. So this was a big deal. Ancestries was a big deal for the Jewish people. So it, does, it shouldn't surprise us that Luke at this particular point decides that he's going to unfold the ancestry of Jesus Christ in the form of a genealogy. Now, the reason that he does it is different than the reasons that I just gave you. I believe the reason he does this is because he wants to bring us assurance. He wants us to be assured of two things. He wants us to be assured that Jesus is who he said he was and that he will do what he says that he will ultimately do. So those are the two things we want to be assured about. Again, uh, let me just say this. Uh, we are looking at a genealogy. Okay, you understand that. And so normally, if you're new to us, the reason we're preaching on it is because we just work through the word of God. We don't want to pick and choose what we want to hear. We want the whole counsel of the word of God. Amen? Amen. 
For those for Mass, that's right, and I'll take it. And, and, and so we, we want to know all the Word of God, but we all understand when we get to a genealogy like this, it can be a little bit tough. Would you agree? And so it's a little bit difficult trying to track through it, trying to understand it. In fact, it reminds me a little bit of a movie that I saw just two weeks ago. See, that's what happens if you had COVID. You can go to the movie theater now. So... Everybody double up and get busy. So uh, anyway, so went to the movie theater. I mean, you know, you can go anywhere, do anything, eat anything, lick anything. You're just not afraid anymore. And so we're in the movie theater watching a movie. Not going to tell you which one it is because you'll judge me. And not bad, but you judge me anyway because of your wicked heart, not mine. And so watching the movie, and at the end of the movie, I got my son next to me. I've got Pastor Dan to the right of me. And I, leave, and I go, well... I understood about 19% of everything that happened in that two and a half hour movie. I just did not understand what was going on in it. So I am hoping today that as I lay this out, that we'll follow and understand more than 19% of what I'm about to say uh, today. So here's what we wanna do. I, I, I wanna just begin to give you some general understanding of really what this genealogy is all about. And then at the end, be able to try to drive it home on, on why this should assure us the way that we had said it would. And so uh, let me just begin with this. Uh, first of all, Luke's genealogy is made up of 77 different names, 77 names. And these are some of the names you would recognize, some of the names you don't recognize and aren't familiar at all, uh, because we don't find them anywhere else in either the New or the Old Testament. So that makes these names not only obscure, but to be honest with you, they're even really, really hard to pronounce, hence the reason why I didn't read through all 77 names to begin with, because I don't want you to hear me slaughter all their names. And so if you are a parent here, and maybe you're pregnant, maybe you're an expecting mother, and you're looking for a good biblical name to be able to name your little child, uh, don't use this list, okay? Go somewhere else. Uh, they're just all difficult names. Well, this particular genealogy is actually one of two that we find in the New Testament. The other is actually found in the gospel according to Matthew in chapter 1. And if we were to lay both of these genealogies out, it would become very quickly apparent that there are some similarities, but there are some very clear differences between the two as well. Now, some of those differences really aren't that big of a deal, to be honest with you. Example uh, of one of those differences is that they, they both really place this story in different places of their narratives. In other words, Matthew places it at the very beginning in chapter 1. He uses it really as an introduction to the birth of Jesus Christ. Luke, however, on the other side, actually uses his, he places his genealogy at the end of chapter 3 as a way of introducing Jesus' public ministry. So they're in two different places. And not only that, uh, they're really presented and laid out in two different ways. If you look at Matthew's genealogy, what you begin to find is that he delivers it in descending order. In other words, it begins with Abraham, and it begins to work down all the way to Jesus. But when you look at Luke, he goes the opposite way. It's in ascending order. He actually starts with Jesus, and he works back, not just to Abraham, but all the way back to Adam himself. So these are clear differences. But what I'd say is these differences really aren't a, a bad thing because both of them are authors. And by writing these particular texts, there is going to be a certain amount of liberty that they have to be able to deliver these things, place them and present them in a way that's going to try to drive home the point that each of these authors are trying to make. But there are some differences that can be troubling. And some of the troubles, they begin, these are supposed to be genealogies and the genealogies of Jesus Christ, yet they don't seem to match up. 
There are some of the names that seem to be exactly the same, some sections. Uh, then you get to large sections, and none of the names are alike as well. And that can be troublesome, especially when we think that one of the reasons that, that, that Luke is writing this is he wants to assure us that what he's writing is true. If that was the case, you would have think he would have at least cut and paste from Matthew's genealogy and at least made sure that it matched up perfectly. So again, this could be a problem unless there's a clear explanation and a helpful explanation that would show that these two things are different for a reason. Now, I got to tell you that there are, no doubt, uh, there are many different theories about why they're different. You can look them up, you can read about them, but I think for personally, the best understanding to be able to understand why these discrepancies actually exist is to understand they're just two different genealogies. Two different genealogies. You say, how can that be? Uh, it's just Jesus, Jesus' genealogy. Well, the reason it can be is because he had two parents, just like you and I, uh, an earthly father and an earthly mother. And when you go to Matthew, what you find is that Matthew is actually laying out Jesus' lineage through the father, Joseph. And then when we get to Luke, what we end up finding is that Luke is actually following the lineage of Mary. And this makes sense when you understand the Gospels. When you read and study the Gospels, you find out that Matthew's focus is usually on Joseph and not as much on Mary. And Luke's emphasis is on Mary and not nearly as much on Joseph. And so the idea that both of these are following a path back are important. But what's most important is where they lead back to. They actually lead back to King David, both on his father's side and his mother's side. Now, why is that important? It's important because the promise that God had made to David. He said in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12, God said to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And then he adds in verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So here's the promise that he makes to David. He goes, David, from your line is going to be a king. I'm going to raise up a king. And that king, his, his, his kingdom is going to last forever. Now, that should give you a clue that this is no ordinary human king that this king is actually going to be a Messiah. This is a messianic prophecy that through the line of David would come the promised Messiah again, who would, be, who, who would meet the qualifications and be a solid heir to the throne of David. And at the same time, he says, will come from the actual body of David, meaning that he's going to be a blood relative. Now, why is this important? because the people needed to be able to verify whether Jesus was truly the promised Messiah or not. I don't know if you know this, but throughout human history, or at least for the last 2,000 years, there have been Jesus uh, uh, imposters popping up everywhere. People that would come up and say, listen, I'm actually the real Messiah. This was happening during the first century. I actually met one when I was about 12 years old. I was 12 years old, and my dad, uh, our church was in a really difficult, kind of rundown area of town. And so my dad would say, hey, brother, you need to be a light wherever it is that you, where you live. This this is where our church is. This is where we're going to minister to. And so we would go and we'd begin to feed the poor. We'd get a loaf of bread. We'd make up a bunch of sandwiches. We'd wrap them up. 
And then early in the morning or late at night, we'd pass out all of these sandwiches. I always got to hold the sandwich bag because my dad would do the talking. And so we would walk around, and one day we met a man. He was homeless, and, and, and we kind of woke him up, felt bad about that. But my dad didn't recognize the man. He must have been new to that area. And my dad said, hello. He goes, my name's Bill. And he goes, this is my son, Michael. He goes, we'd love to give you a sandwich. So, of course, I stepped up and gave him a sandwich. There you go, sir. And he took it. And my dad said, well, what is your name? And he said, Jesus. And my dad was like, oh, that's wonderful. He goes, that's, that's our favorite name in the whole wide world It's the name Jesus. What is your last name? And he says, well, it's Jesus Christ. And he goes, oh, Jesus Christ. And he goes, yes. He goes, son, it's Jesus Christ. And, and, uh, and he goes, yes, Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. He goes, yes, the son of the living God. And I was already born again at the time. I'd been saved several years. I was a real fan of Jesus. Couldn't wait to see him face to face one day. But this was a disappointment, right? <laughs> and had I known what I knew then, all I would have had to do is I'm sitting there, is this really Jesus? But really all you would need to do is to be able to look at a genealogy and look back and say, yeah, I don't know if you really fit the bill going back to David. And so this is what the people would do. They were looking for this Messiah. It had been promised for centuries and here they're waiting for him, and now somebody pops up or other people say, hey, this is the Messiah. There has to be some definitive proof, and one of the ways to prove that is to instantly sit there and say, let me see your genealogy. Let me see your family to see where you go back to, because it was promised to David that whoever this Messiah is ultimately going to be is going to find their root into the person of David. So let's see it. And so what we find here is it's not just one line of Jesus' lineage, but both lines of his lineage that actually find their way back to King David. And what's interesting is even though both of these are different, they're meant to validate two different things, okay? For example, uh, uh, Joseph's line found in, the or excuse me, found in the book of Matthew, what we find there is the emphasis is really on the fact that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of David. Let me explain. When you go back and follow both lines, both Joseph and Mary's, it goes all the way back and it meets where? In one place, in the King David. Now, he had two sons. Where it begins to change is when he has two sons. Oh, he has actually four sons through Bathsheba, but two of the sons being one is Solomon and the other is Nathan. Well, Joseph's side comes from Solomon. Now, why is that significant? Because, because Solomon was the rightful heir to the throne of David. So every firstborn after him would have the rightful, the legal right to be able to obtain and to be able to come to the throne. They would be the next heir apparent if that line and that rule had continued on. It didn't continue on. However, if it did, it would find its way all the way in succession to Joseph and to the person of Jesus Christ, proving that yes, he was the Messiah because he came from the Messiah, but he was also the rightful heir to the throne of David, just like was promised to him by God himself. And so the idea is some would sit back and say, yeah, but he wasn't the flesh and blood of Joseph. You're absolutely right. But it was okay during that day, even all the way through the line, that if a king couldn't have a son, he could adopt a son and that adopted son would become the rightful heir. And that's precisely what happens in what Joseph does. He adopts Jesus at his own, allowing him to again do what? Be the legal heir to the throne of David. Now, there's a problem 
And that is, there's no blood between the two. But remember the promise, he had to come from his body. He says, he will come from your own body. Well, how do we reconcile that? Well, what I would suggest is it comes through this in Luke. It comes through this particular line, this genealogy that we find of Mary in the book of Luke. Now, here's the big question. How do we know this is Mary's genealogy? Because in it, there's nowhere that it says the name Mary. So how in the world would we know? Look at verse 23. It says, being the son, as was supposed to Joseph, the son of Heli. Now, when he says, as was opposed, that was the, uh, as was supposed, the people during the day just figured that Jesus, that, that Joseph was the actual uh, father of, of um, Jesus, even though we know that's not the case. We have just studied in the last several weeks that he, he, he didn't have a human father. Rather, he was, he was brought about by a power, powerful act, a miraculous act of the Holy Spirit, bringing about that life in the womb of Mary. So no human father. We'll, we'll catch on that in just a minute. But notice this. He says, of Joseph, the son of Heli. Now, here's the problem. Heli is not Joseph's actual biological father. Uh, the, we find actually over in Matthew that his father, biological father was actually Jacob. Heli then here, most scholars believe, was actually the father of Mary. So then the question is, then why is he not, why doesn't he say that? Why does he say Joseph, the son of Heli? Well, in most of these genealogies, from everything that we can tell, except for in Matthew, and he only does it for some specific reasons, but usually in these genealogies, no women are ever found. Matthew does it, but he's trying to demonstrate uh, that particular lineage and, and showing that God had chosen those people that were disgraced in the world to be able to bring about the Messiah. But here in this particular lineage, what Luke is basically doing is just following the rule of the day. No women mentioned in the line of these genealogies. So you sit back and go, but how do we know it's connected to Mary? Because when he says that it was the son of Heli, Heli being her father, uh, what we understand is the word for son there can be used not just for somebody's biological son, but somebody's relative. So it can be not only a son, but a grandson or a great-grandson or a great-great-grandson. Think in terms of the sons of Abraham. When we speak of the sons of Abraham, we're not saying that he has sons that number the, the sands of the seashore being actually his own sons, poor mom. But these are relatives that begin to come out from them. Well, this is the same thing, except for the fact that the word son here is now, is now uh, meaning son-in-law. So it's very simply can mean any of those things. And so here, by him telling the people, knowing that you don't use women in the genealogy, by him using this phrase, the son of Heli, would make them immediately know that he was the son-in-law, which meant that this line was not Joseph's, but rather was Mary's instead. And so, again, we see the significance of this, that what happens is on both sides, what we find is that both find themselves in David's line, stemming directly from him, from two different sons, one perfectly fulfilling the legal right to rule and reign, and the other fulfilling the requirement of coming from his body and coming from the bloodline. This should give us confidence that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. Now, the question is, how does this help us? Because remember the point from the very beginning. The point from the very beginning is that this is all supposed to assure us. It is to assure us. And you say, well, where do you come up with that? How do you know that that's what Luke is doing? Because that's what Luke has been doing from the beginning of the book. The whole series is to believe, nobody knows. 
Uh, that's helpful. Is to believe more. To believe more. Back in chapter 1, this is, this, is, this is what Luke said. He says, I'm writing this so that you might be more certain of the things that you have learned about Jesus Christ, his teaching and who he is. I want you to be more certain. So the book is primarily written not to lost people, but to born-again believers for them to be more certain in what it is that they already believe. And so what we find is he lays all this out, and he's been doing it from the beginning. He's been giving these very specific details of Jesus' life and of his birth and everything that was going around in it. And he had eyewitnesses to, co- to corroborate it. This is where he's getting his information. And so he would talk to family members like Zachariah and Martha and Mary and say, give the account. What exactly did the angels say? And he would be careful to be able to write it down. There were complete strangers like shepherds and Simeon and Anna who also testified to the truths of Jesus' life and what was going on during that day. There were even large crowds of witnesses as in the, the, the uh, baptism of Jesus that we saw just last week, where they begin to see things and hear things. They saw the dove, the Holy Spirit, descend from heaven on Jesus Christ at his baptism. They, they, they saw the heavens open up, and all of a sudden, a voice cries out from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So what is he doing? He's writing all of this down to give concrete, legitimate sources, which would give proof to the original audience that Jesus is who he says he is. Why? Because the people could go back and go, you interviewed them, you're quoting them. I want to go back to the same exact people, and not only the own people, but I want to check this out as well in the genealogy. Does Jesus truly, is he truly come from the line of David? And they find out that he actually is. And so what we find here is, some of you say, somebody might ask, well, Pastor Mike, are you really saying that if somebody were just to actually honestly study the scriptures, really honestly study the book of Luke, and to address it with an open mind and try to really determine whether it's actually true or not, that they would walk away 1,000% convinced, believing, and have come to faith in Jesus Christ? No. Well, let me, let me explain why. I, I know you didn't see that coming. No. And, and here's why. Because saving faith does not come by man's own study, but by a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. So do you remember, now listen, do you remember... Uh, back when, when, when Peter, when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And they begin to give him, you know, all these different things. People are saying, you're this prophet and you're that prophet. And then he says, but who do you say that I am? And he says, you're the Christ. That's another way of saying you're the promised Messiah. And he says, blessed are you, Peter. He says, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but rather the Holy Spirit revealed this to you. But with that said, let me say this. But if the Holy Spirit is going to grant us faith to believe, it is going to be through the word of God that we come to believe. And so I can't sit back and tell somebody and convince anybody. And we've all got to get this in our head. You've got to understand this. You can't can't sit down with somebody and prove absolutely 1,000% that everything within the word of God is absolutely true. Do I believe it is? It is. I do. But what we can do is anybody who is reasonable that actually comes and begins to study it will find out that these are not fairy tales. Instead, what these are are these are things that are based on solid proofs that actually teach that what's being written is indeed reasonable to believe. 
There will always be a moment where we have to use faith to believe, and that's where salvation ultimately comes about. Think about it for just a moment. Uh, that is in our witness, but think about it for us personally for a minute, our own insurance. Our own insurance comes with this, and a lot of us aren't going to want to agree with this, but there are times that you and I have inside of our lives moments, faith crisis, where sometimes we struggle to believe. Would you agree with that? And sometimes what it comes from is we hear some speaker or some professor somewhere or something ultimately happening, and they'll say something that you and I don't have the answer for, and all of a sudden you feel that little bit of shaking. Are you with me? You feel it kind of shaking your faith. Now, here's the thing. Did you lose your faith? No. Is it shaken a little bit? Yeah, it's shaken a little bit. So you know what he's doing here? There's a whole field called apologetics. Maybe you understand what this is. Some of our elders love it. Uh, 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 one of our, uh, I almost called you Elder Craig, but that just makes you sound like an old man. But one of our elders, Craig, he loves apologetics. He studies apologetics. But one thing that I believe, I'm not suggesting that you can't win somebody to faith through apologetics. And what it is is basically arguing for the truthfulness of the scriptures and, 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 the, and the claims of the Bible. But what I am saying is I rarely ever see it, but here's one thing I know that it does. When you study and study genealogies like this and you're really sincere in doing it, what you find yourself doing is your faith and my faith is assured all the more. It's a lease for us as believers that when we're shaken, when believers are shaken, it's because they're listening more to the world, spending more time listening to the world than they are in the word of God and studying the word of God and being saturated in. One of the privileges that I have as being one of your pastors, and I thank you so much for this, is that you give me the opportunity to be in the text of scripture all week, studying and searching the scriptures. And, and as I do, there are times where what I do is I just push back from the desk and I think to myself, this is all too real. This is all too real. This is way too complex for somebody's mere imagination to be able to happen. In fact, when we look at it, when you think even looking at the Old Testament, you see 100 old te over 100 Old Testament prophecies concerning the promised Messiah. And in order for Jesus Christ to be that Messiah, he had to fulfill every single one, every single one without, uh, 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 without exception. And I'm not talking about just mere prophecies and prophetic sayings like when you call up the psychic, which I hope you don't, and they sit there and go, hey, you, I can see you gaining weight in the future. And you're like, duh, I just paid for that? Of course. I'm not talking about things that are kind of obvious. I'm talking about things that are actually supernatural that have to take place. Like, like a virgin birth being born in a specific location, out of the way, Bethlehem, introduced by the forerunner John, being rejected by his own people, being crucified on a tree, and being raised on the third day. And oh yeah, making sure that he follows all of the criteria of a Messiah because he comes from the right line of David. Every single bit of that encourages you and I and assures us once again that Jesus Christ is truly who he says he is. He is the savior of the world. He is the savior of the world. Now, number two, last thing. Last thing, we're almost done. It's amazing how fast this time goes by for me. All right, and so number two, uh, be assured that Jesus will do what he says he will do. He will save you. He will save you. So let me, let me draw one more difference between these two genealogies, Matthew and that what we find in Luke. Matthew's genealogy only goes back to Abraham. Well, Luke's go, goes all the way back to Adam. Why is that? 
Well, the book of Matthew was written primarily to Jewish people. And the most important thing for them is they already had a level of belief. They were waiting for the Messiah to come. They understood that the promise to, to David had to be fulfilled, but the promise to Abraham had to be fulfilled as well. And so we read the promise in Genesis chapter 12. This is what Abraham was promised by God. He says, and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God tells Abraham that it's going to be his family, the Jewish family, the Jewish people, uh, this group of people, that the ultimate Savior is going to come because it's going to be through the Savior that all the nations of the world is ultimately going to be blessed. Well, if you were a Jewish person reading that genealogy, you've got all, everything that you need. You're in. Hey, I'm a part of Abraham. That's good. This is the Messiah. I believe I'm okay. It's okay unless you're a Gentile. Because if you're Gentile, clearly you're not a Jewish person. So what does Luke do? Writing primarily to Gentiles, he says, we're going to go beyond Abraham, and we're going to go all the way back to Adam. We're going to go all the way back to Adam. Why? Because Abraham might be a father of a nation, but Adam is a father of all nations. Believe it or not, you married a relative. Okay, just think about that later, okay? By the way, that's not supposed to be normal. Okay, just I want to make sure that's right. But you married a relative. Why? Because all of our ancestors can't be followed back to one person, one family, Adam and, what's her name? Eve. That's it. I forget sometimes her name. But anyway, Adam and Eve. And so we go back to that. So why is that even significant? Well, it's significant because then all people understand that Jesus was not only, now follow this, the son of David, which he fulfilled the promise to David. We already covered that. That he was not only the son of Abraham, and he fulfilled the promise that God had made to Abraham, but he was also the son of Adam. That's how the scripture speaks of him. He's the son of Adam, meaning he was the last Adam. Let me tell you the difference between the two of these. There's some similarities. The similarity between Adam and Jesus is that neither one had an earthly father. That is biological father. They were both a part of the creation of God, a unique creation. Adam was created, formed, formed there out of clay and, and dust, blowing life into it uh, um, by the Holy Spirit's power. Uh, Jesus is created within the womb of Mary. So there's a similarity. Here's why that similarity is important. Neither one had a sin nature. Neither one. But as we know, Adam was tempted he falls, he sins, a curse occurs that we read about in Genesis chapter 3, which causes everybody to be born after that point in Adam to be born in sin, underneath the curse of sin. So if you were born, you're under the curse of sin, which means that we're under the judgment of God. Jesus Christ comes along and he is the last, the perfect, the fulfillment of who Adam should have been. Because when he comes on the scene, here's what happens. He comes on the scene. Y'all just look at me, if you can. All right, do whatever. Just look over here. All right, here's what happens with Adam. So with Adam, when, when, when Jesus Christ comes on the scene, he too has no sin nature. Why does he have no sin nature? Because God in his great wisdom made sure that he did not inherit the sin of, of Joseph, but yet at the same time allowed him to adopt him 
to be able to be the rightful heir, but yet he was the blood made of the blood of man, which is his wife. And so therefore he was truly man. He was fully man, fully God and fully man. So he's tempted in every way, yet he sins not. Why is that important? Because if he has sin, when he dies on the cross, he doesn't die for your sin. He dies to pay for his own sin. And so he is the son of Adam as well. And so what we see is there's one more son that he is. And if you keep going back and you see at the end of this genealogy, what is the very last son that he says? He is the son of God, which means that he has the ability to forgive you of your sins because he meets all the qualifications of the promised Messiah that Jesus Christ has ultimately sent. And if you will repent and call out to him for salvation, he will save you. The Bible says if we confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be born again. Now, I know for some of you, maybe you're sitting back and you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm not convinced. The truth of the matter is, and I, and I say this out of all respect for you, you're, you're just not honest in many ways. You have in your heart that it doesn't matter what we say, what we do, what we teach, you're just not gonna believe because you have your heart set against it. But what I would encourage you to do is even if you're a skeptic, to be an honest skeptic and at least sit there and say, look, if there's truth in this, I would like to try to discover it. I would like to learn, I don't believe it is, I believe it's a bunch of rubbish, but if it's true, I would want to know ultimately that it's true. And I wanna encourage you to be able to seek the scriptures, learn the scriptures. And when you do, you will find yourself in the way that so many have come before you and they supernaturally come to faith in Jesus Christ because of the assurance that we find within the word of God. Now, for the rest of you, it might just be simply this. You may have just been struggling with your faith. You might be stumbling a little bit. You might, maybe you're just down at the moment. But what it does is you just need to hear that Jesus is who he says that he is. And he will do what he says that he will do. Let's pray.